Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor of Sociology, Paul Lopes. Lopes specializes in cultural sociology, media studies, and popular culture. His work explores the sociology of art and pays particular attention to social inequality and the influence of race and ethnicity in popular media. Lopes has been published in numerous journal articles and has several books, including The Rise of a Jazz Art World, published by Cambridge Press in 2002, Demanding Respect, The Evolution of the American Comic Book, published by Temple University Press in 2009, and his most recent work is Art Rebels, Class, Race, and Gender in the Art of Miles Davis and Martin Scorsese. Lopes held teaching positions at the University of California, Berkeley, the University of San Francisco, Tufts, Mount Holyoke College, and Smith College before joining Colgate in 2005. He earned his Bachelor's of Art from UC Berkeley, his Master's from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and his PhD from Berkeley. Professor Lopes, welcome to 13. Well, thank you for inviting me, Dan. I'm so happy to have you on the show, and I think this is going to be our last episode before the holidays. Oh, wow. Do you have any eggnog? (laughs) I should have brought some. Um, But I figure uh, this will be kind of a fun one to to leave uh, until we come back um, after a little winter recess. So um, I think we should start out. Uh, talking a little bit about your research and your work uh, as a as a professor, and under your faculty bio, you have uh, there's a section that says interests, and you have <laughs> one thing, and it says rebellion and transition in art worlds. That's tell it. tell me about this interest. That's the only interest I have. It's the only one. <laughs> Better go back and edit that one. Um, so. I'm interested in change is one way to think about it Um, and change in art and media and what both what leads to change and then what is the impact of that change. And then I'm also interested obviously in representation, uh, racial, gender, um, ethnic and other types of representations in a predominantly white society. And so that's what inspired me for my first book. Uh, originally, I was going to study social movements, um, political sociology, but then I took a cultural sociology course, and it really attracted my attention. And so I thought, well, since I'm a jazz musician, and I love the history of jazz, why don't I do a sociological analysis of jazz? Well, what would be a moment of change in jazz, right? Because I'm interested in jazz particularly a, a change that involves question of race and class. And so in after World War II, right, within the jazz community, which at that time were the popular musicians of America, they're called swing musicians, right, okay, yeah. Bobby Soxers, um, why suddenly did a group, a large group of them, uh, begin to distance themselves from jazz as a popular dance music, begin to perform in ensembles, in concert halls or jazz clubs in a kind of high art performance? And how did they develop this type of high art attitude towards the playing of jazz and the position of jazz in American culture? And that's what the book kind of talks about, right? And, um, and what I discovered, I'm talking about a book 20 years old, 
on his scout. It was quite fascinating. So I usually I I have a general frame about status and art I borrowed from the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. And I have a general set of tools to analyze an art world or a media industry, hmm. right? But other than that, I'm a historian. So I let the individuals talk to me about what was driving what they were doing. And I decided I had to go pretty far back, right? Pretty far back. So uh, there's a musician, there was a magazine for professional musicians called Metronome. Um, and Carl Fisher owned it, which okay. still exists today. And it started in 1872. So at the University of Pennsylvania, they had microfiche of metronome from 1872 until oh, cool. it went defunct in 1958, I think, or 1960. I went through every issue. <laughs> you read all the issues? I, I, no, you, you speed read. Okay, gotcha. right? It's microfiche, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So you speed read, and you catch things that you think are of interest. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of categories. You know, oh, gender. Oh, that's about gender. Uh, oh, that's about you know race, professionalism. And what I discovered is that at the end of the 1800s, you began to have the emergence of nonprofit symphonies, Boston Symphony, okay. BSO being the first, right? And in that process, you had this elite, American elite, that were patronizing that. And as they developed it, they really had a desire to monopolize the musicians because in most 1800s, musicians played everything. They played classical music, they played minstrel music, they played folk songs, they played everything, hmm. right? So they could be in a cooperative orchestra playing European classical music and then performing a march in the park during the summer, oh. right? And, but what the new symphonies did is they monopolized by forcing musicians to sign a contract that they would not perform for another organ another organization or another space. Hmm. They would only perform with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And not only did they do that, they usually had imported European musicians into these positions. So there's this large, large population of American professional musicians locked out of the classical music establishment and the status associated with being a classical musician and were basically looked down upon as popular performers. Hmm. So there was this tension Right, this tension going that was building into the beginning of the 20th century. And at the same time this was happening, this split in general among musicians, you had a segregated music world, right? So that black musicians performed for black audiences in black groups and whites, white audiences, white groups. And then throughout American history, African Americans would perform for white audiences since slavery times. Um, they, perform, they were usually musicians for dances on plantations. So there's a tension there, too, that the African-Americans were even a lower status hmm. and not seen as capable as white musicians. So these tensions are just getting more and more. And so in the 1920s, what they do is they adopt jazz as their form of rebellion, right? And they called it 100% American. You know, not America first, because <laughs> it was a lot of nationalism in the 1920s. 100% American. It's not European uh, music. Uh -huh. They're not European musicians. It's American musicians playing at 100% American. None of this Mozart. None of this Mozartsy guy. <laughs> you know, and um, and that's and so they adopt this and they transform the New Orleans style, you know, the ensemble style, into the type of dance orchestras that already existed, and that's what swing came out of. Hmm. Right, swing came out of this rebellion of professional musicians trying to adopt a music 
up against the status of the classical music. And then it happens one more time after World War II. So I finished the book. I was lost. I was wandering the streets of Cambridge because um, I taught at Tufts. <laughs> so, uh, and there was a nice Pete's coffee shop right there at the square in Cambridge. And I'm going, well, I have to pick an art form that's not respected. I go, oh, pornography. Uh, and then I thought, comic books. And then I thought, everyone's written about pornography. It was the cool thing to write about in the 90s. <laughs> and then I walk out, I look across the street, and I see a sign for a comic book shop. And I cross the street, I go down the stairs, because so many comic book shops at that time yes. were in basements or abandoned malls. And um, I walk in, and I ask the guy at the desk, do you have some books on, on comic books? And I, and I start wandering around, and these two kids are talking, maybe 22 ish. Mm -hmm. And they're going, you know, if you go to the Widener, which is the Harvard Library, you'll find maybe three books about comic books in English. And then you'll find 25 books in German and French about comic books. Comic book has no respect in America. Title of my book. Second book? Second book. <laughs> talk, talk about the evolution of the American comic. So number one, you saw that there was this gap. There wasn't a lot of scholarly books about comic books. Um, That's I, a, that was their perception. Okay. There was a, 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 a community of scholars that did write about comic books. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about the, um, the span of time in the evolution of the American comic book. Do you basically start at the beginning and go through the comics oh, code yeah. all, all the way through? Oh, God. I'm going to screw this up. All right. I think Superman's 1938. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'll double check for you. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, when was Superman created? Should have brought my book. 33. Okay. Okay. Created in 33. That doesn't mean it was published then. Though. So in the early... 1938. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-1930s, because Superman was originally a comic strip, or uh, conceived as one, right? So comic strips go into the late 1800s, right? Yellow Kid's late 1800s. Um, Yellow Journals, and it's based on a comic strip character, <laughs> Yellow Kid. Um... But in the 1930s, there are some entrepreneurs, Jewish entrepreneurs, um, who were seeing the success of pulp magazines. In this case, would be science fiction was probably the dominant. Like weird tales? Weird tales and so forth. But they're the pulp magazine form, so it's written text mm -hmm. with, you know, nice covers on them, right? And so what they do is they buy some presses and they begin to create comic books. And but they're from the pulp industry, so these are pulp fiction, more or less in graphic form, and it begins really focused on a young adult and adolescent market, like Superman, right, Batman, and so forth. And into the 1940s and post-war period, they begin to expand the genres beyond uh, kids comic books like Donald Duck and Superman, comic books, adventure comic books as well. And they began to expand into horror, science fiction, war, romance. And they begin to expand their audience to adults, right? And they become the largest uh, print form in America, right? The largest, most wow. lucrative print form in America. More than comics. Books. More than yeah. regular books. Yes. Mm. By, the by 1950. 
a lot of the market grew during the war. Soldiers needed something to read. They weren't going to read Melville's Moby Dick. So, yeah, they're easy to ship. And they also used comic books as instructional manuals for factories and the military as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, so... Um, and so when this market expanded, they began to have content that many parents and the Catholic Church felt was inappropriate for children and young adults. Yes. And so you have this period of censorship against comic books and other forms of popular culture right? that led to congressional hearings in 1954 and led to the Comics Code. Now, was that the first moment of overt censorship of the arts in America, of like a mass-produced product like that? No. The first major wave, because there's always censorship, this is a Puritan <laughs> culture, right, is Comstock okay, in, the, in the late 1800s ah. against both obesity. Usually people focus on his attack on obesity. He, you know, he had committees set up in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, um, looking for material to censor and art as well, mm. right? That was kind of the tension, too, is that they actually challenged, you know, art, sculptures that were naked and so forth and so on. But he also went after um, Pulp Fiction, children's literature, because Pulp Fiction comes out of the Civil War, right? But basically they discover that you can make paper from wood and not cotton, kind of essential innovation when you were fighting the South. <laughs> Right, and that's why it's called pulp fiction because oh. it's pulp wood is made for the paper, and that was they're called dime novels, and they spread like rapid fire, kind of like the comic books in okay. the thirties and forties, and so they t- attacked those as well. Hmm. Is in, in like um, England they had like the penny dreadful. Yes, exactly. The penny dreadful is what we call the dime novel. Okay, neat. So, mm-hmm. so they start the comic code. Tell me about that. So I don't even know what was in the comic code. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But let's just say the comic code basically destroyed the adult market, Mm. right? It killed um, EC comics, right, weird tales and so forth. So war comic books, romance comic books, they all died out because they were not allowable under the comics code. Mm -hmm. So what you had left, and that's ironic because the superhero died during the late 40s and 50s. It was not really the dominant Mm. form. Romance comic books were the the biggest market, right? But once you killed adult comic books, you had the reemergence of superheroes in the late 50s, right? That's really what gave Marvel its opportunity to become what it is today, right? DC was still doing all right. Is that like the golden age? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, So with that... Down, then you have a lot of comic book companies going bankrupt. You have a consolidation of the industry and a focus on young adult, adolescent, and children comic books again. And so you have an arrested development of the foreign, mm. along with the arrested development of fanboys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so, so this, this becomes the market in the 1960s. But ironically, right at that moment, you begin to have a really dedicated comic book fandom in the early 60s. It really kind of emerges in the early 60s. Um, and with that fandom, you have a kind of strange new form of respect for an art form that you can respect Superman. <laughs> and you can, you can respect these comic books for children as art, 
right? And appreciate them as art, right? And so they are forming an appreciation of the art form, even if it is stuck in this world of adolescence and childhood, right? But by developing that appreciation, and then with the rise of underground comics, mm. right? Underground comics emerges, that introduces adult content into this art form. Now, what do you mean by underground comics? They were called underground comics because they first appeared in underground press. So the radical presses across the country in the late, well, begins mid-60s, because Village Vanguard is underground press. Um, that's where they first, Art Spiegelman first published in that, right? So, so that's why they're called underground comics in part, because they are also, when they became comics, they were published by the people that published underground newspapers. Other, other works, yeah, yeah. Right? Newspapers. Um, and they saw themselves as part of that movement, right? They saw that part of that movement. So not only did they shift to an adult focus, but if you look at the whole universe of underground comic books, they also introduced politics, gender politics, anti-war politics, hmm. cultural politics writ large, gay politics. That's the, you know, all that emerges. It's still struggling against white males, <laughs> but it's there. That's the moment where comic books show its potential for an adult audience and to be serious and political. Hmm. And as that continues, and they struggle, because then censorship comes in again, early 70s, wipes out the underground comic books. And, um, and it reemerges by the late, late 1970s because you have a new generation of comic book artists who have that appreciation that fan culture began to create, like Alan Moore, mm. both in Britain and the U.S., fan base, like Alan Moore, right? It, they are coming with a very different understanding of the potential of comic books. And what I argue, as I argue in my new book, is that what you have are, in some ways, two paths to this revolution in the 1980s. One path is like uh, Watchmen, uh, Batman, where you take pulp literature, but you see it as a legitimate form of art, right? With deep storytelling, deep history, meta text, multiple levels of meaning, like in Watchmen and in Batman, uh, Swamp Thing, whatever you want to pick, right? So these artists are really looking at, you know, popular culture as a legitimate form of expression and storytelling. Mm. But then you have others that really have the more high art moral, like Art Spiegelman and Mouse, where they really see, we want to expand the kind of aesthetics of this art form as well. Mm. But both of those paths, to me, are brilliant and wonderful. And you have feminist comic books coming back out, too, as well. Mm. And Paul, So that there's the political, there's the different aesthetics that are being formed. And it was a really a moment of flourishing for comic books. Right? Now, was that because the Comics Code Authority went away? Is that... Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that so that's great. So that's about the mid-1980s, right? And into the 90s, they're not, they're not able to capture as big a recognition as they want, so there's a lot of whining on their part, but they're doing fine. But by the mid-90s, maybe... By the mid-90s, the market was beginning to collapse, mostly due to speculation. Hmm. That is, comic books became collectibles. So they started printing a billion of them. Billion of them, 
and people were hoarding them. It was just bad, yeah. really bad. And so when I said, maybe I'll do convokes, it's 1999 or something like that. And it was like the death of comic books, right? That's all you, the death of comic books. And then two things happened. Something called Magna suddenly was like hugely successful. They tried it before, but they did it, uh, uh-oh. You're talking about manga, like the Japanese? Manga, Japanese manga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they did it, uh, I hope I get this right. Okay. Left to right. Uh, the it's, Western way. It's, it's, uh. The Western way is left to right. Right to left is uh, the manga. Yes. Yeah. And so, but originally they did it left to right, and it failed because they did it wrong. Yeah, they yeah. did it wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have that, and what's great about that is bringing more women because it was a, lo- a really large number of women in America were into manga, uh, and then you had something called Hollywood discovery. Right, that, I'd argue it saved Hollywood practically. It saved Hollywood. Well, Martin Scorsese said it ruined Hollywood, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but it saved comic books. It saved, and Marvel was the first to realize that. And so, that's the moment when geeks became cool. Right, geeks became cool. And so, what I do in my book, I talk about San, San Diego Comic Con. Right, we had about maybe. I'm going to get this wrong. Maybe 30,000 visiting it. And within five years, it was like 124,000, right? It was the place to go, mm-hmm. right? And then not only Hollywood, video games, streaming, they go, oh, this is where we can premiere, test, product, right? Yeah, I had always wondered. I mean, you think about how many comic books were made through the years, and there's like endless story ideas that Hollywood had never capitalized on, and it was just sitting there the whole time. Yeah. Uh, shocking, yeah. honestly. It took so long. Well, it's weird because, I mean, part of always a large part of popular culture is remediation. We call it remediation. Other people call it stealing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, basically, you have a successful comic book, you make a be real Superman film, right? Or be real this, or be real that, Dick Tracy, right? So you're always repurposing in different mediums the same content. And we're still doing that today, which is fine. <laughs> um, I want to ask about your your most recent book, um, and and I find it really fascinating because uh, I don't think I've ever seen anyone combine uh, jazz and cinema like that uh, in in this way. And you think of, uh, um, I, I guess, how did you land on your your two um, protagonists or your the the two right. threads that you're following? So I'm getting older. I've been doing art for a while. So I said, it's time to do that culmination moment, right? Coming, tying that knot, moving on in life, moving on in research. And so Pierre Bourdieu wrote a book called Rules of Art, which is a classic in the sociology of art. And in that book, what he argues is he views art as existing in a conceptual field. Right? And what he looks at are the, the different kind of demands or different dynamics that shape art, shape artists, communities, the art that's made, the audiences that consume it, the critics, and all these different elements. Um, and he's interested in autonomy. He's obsessed with autonomy. And so he argues that at the end of the 1800s in Europe, particularly in France, you have a moment where the domination of the academy, 
right? The Academy was, the French Academy dominated graphic art at the time. Um, that there was a moment in which a new community of avant-garde artists appeared, particularly in Paris, right? Both in, in theater, in literature, in the arts, we call them impressionists, right? And, um, and they are creating a new subfield that has its own criteria of judgment, its own what he calls symbolic capital, what is valued, right? Their own critics, right? And these critics and these artists emerge and develop this subfield of avant-garde art that remains in this field of art in France in perpetuity. And what he argues is, oh, what happens is the oppressions are outside, but eventually they get inside. And then you have the post-impressionists that then emerge outside. Then they come inside. So he says it's a cycle of rebellion that's built and baked into the avant-garde, mm. right? And so I thought, well, that didn't happen in the States. <laughs> so was there a moment in America that that happened, right? That there was you know, a, a subfield in America that said, we are going to decide what art is. And then you usually do that by presenting a new art form not art style. That's how you claim difference, right? And so what I discovered is, wait a minute, it didn't happen at the same time because we didn't have art museums. We didn't have a developed art field, right? You know, American art in the mid-1800s was pretty bad. It was like folk, more folk art? <laughs> folk art or people pretending to be high artists. Okay. <laughs> Just go to Boston and look at the portraits <laughs> in Faneuil Hall, and you go, oh, my God. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm the, Whistler was wonderful. <laughs> Whistler is an amazing painter, and there are other painters as well. But what you needed in America is the same thing you had in France, and that is you needed to have something to rebel against, right? And it's not really till after World War II that you had an established art world. And what I argue, too, because I believe that rebellion occurs across the arts, lowbrow and highbrow, is in the mid-20th century, you had a dominant culture industry. It controlled everything, music, film, radio, right? It was a oligopoly is what the term we use, right? It was very constraining. And so after World War II, you found this rebellion, right, this claim for autonomy across the arts, right? You have exploitation film, that's pulp rebellion. You have New Hollywood, that's Middlebrow. You have experimental film, that's high. You have experimental music and John Cage, right? That's high. You have jazz, that's middle brow. And you have rock and roll baby, right? That's pulp. <laughs> but they're all rebels, right? Roger Corman is a hero in the history of film, right? The first to get a Khan Award for uh, production. Hmm. Even France recognized that. But they gave a medal to Jerry Lewis, so, you know. <laughs> Asterix. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I thought, okay, this is all happening. Why don't I do what Bordeaux did and pick some artists to see how it articulates in a particular artist's trajectory? But in, what in, in addition I'm going to do is I want to pick an artist that's on the margins of the American social hierarchy, right? I want to you know, see how they articulate as marginal a middle-class black musician like Miles Davis, a working-class Italian from Little Italy, Martin Scorsese, how do they express themselves and their autonomy in these fields? 
And I wanted to pick artists that kept doing it, right? Didn't do it just for five years and then disappeared, or 10 years and disappeared. But artists that, from Miles Davis till his death, was constantly innovating. And Monsieur Sessi was still doing it today, right? Yeah, you think about like the Irishman. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Irishman. And what I liked about both, and Miles Davis is my favorite jazz musician, so that's another reason. Easy choice. I just, I respect him. I think I, he, I just respect him so much for his innovation and his, his confidence in his art. And I really admire Martin Scorsese as well. I'll, I'll pause there for a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was Miles Davis known for in his innovation? This is I'm complete jazz neophyte. I listen to it, you know, randomly, but I don't know anything about it. So, so in the history of jazz, you kind of have these new uh, new styles emerge. The old styles don't disappear, mm-hmm. right? They remain, but you you have these like little bursts of rebellion. Right? And so for the case of what we call modern jazz that appears after swing, bebop is the famous kind of style developed by African-American musicians in New York City um, as a form of rebellion. They openly you know, t- said, we are in rebellion. Um, and it was both rebellion against the industry and against white dominance of jazz was the way it was framed. And he was there. He played with Charlie Parker mm-hmm. and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, but quickly, he was the first to play in a cool jazz ensemble in 1949. But that he didn't really do cool jazz. He just was that. But he was there at the moment it was it emerged. Then he the next was soul jazz that he was part of in 1953 or four. I can't remember. Um, and then modal jazz is another style he was part of. And then he kind of created. It's not really. A, term for it now that I think about it it's kind of the kind of the standard modern jazz that Wynton Marsalis loves so if you listen listen to Wynton Marsalis that's Miles Davis in 1964-65 and then he develops what we call fusion jazz at the end of that decade Hmm. Um, and then he retires for five years and he comes back and he kind of re-embraces a kind of popular aesthetic which he had before because jazz musicians would play popular tunes Right, they just pick up a popular tune and play it and improvise over it. Um, and so he said, "Let's go back to that tradition where we pick a song by Cyndi Lauper and we perform as jazz musicians." Um, and he continued that kind of trend till his death. That's interesting. It reminds me a bit of modern sampling, even right, like sampling of yeah. older songs mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then. The trajectory of Scorsese, how does that, I guess, line up with the life of Miles Davis? Well, it doesn't because they're quite different generationally, right, in terms of age. Mm-hmm. Also, the rebellion happens at a different time, mm-hmm. right? New Hollywood isn't until um, late 60s, right? So it's more that they are there at that moment of rebellion. They're Miles Davis, Bebop, Miles Scorsese, New Hollywood. Coppola's older than Spielberg and Scorsese. He's kind of was their kind of father figure <laughs> at that time, um, and very supportive of them actually. So that's really the the connection there, um, and the connection too with Martin Scorsese is that he also appreciates the popular, right? So he's someone that celebrates kind of 
the Hollywood aesthetic. And that's always in all his films, right? He he does also do this movement that someone like Spike Lee does too. And he even says this, I have the quote in the book, where I'll do something for Hollywood, then I'll do something for me. I'll do something for Hollywood, then I'll do something for me. And that's how I'm going to deal with my relationship to Hollywood. And does he mean uh, project-wise or within the work itself? Project-wise. Okay. So let's see, his latest, I hope I get this right. It's one. It's a beautiful film called Silence. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, it's based on a Japanese novel, and it's, it's, just, it's just amazing. It's about uh, two young Jesuits looking for a Jesuit missionary who disappears in Japan. It's, it's, it's uh, amazing and beautiful. Um, Irishman is kind of in between. You know, it really is a Hollywood film, mm. but they weren't willing to finance it, so he had to go to Netflix, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, so that, that's how he kind of goes back mm. and forth. Shutter Island is actually a Hollywood film. Yes. Yeah, I, I, it'd be funny to try to pick out the ones that were for him and the ones for Hollywood uh, in his career. So like Taxi Driver is his, right? Yeah, and he hasn't... He, that quote I gave you only happens when New Hollywood dies. Okay. Right? right. So when Jaws comes out, even The Godfather is kind of a death knell because mm. um, that's when they release them in multiple screens and so forth. Mm. So they abandon Hollywood right after, um, oh, maybe Apocalypse Now. Mm. Okay. Right? right? So they say we no longer need Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese. We found Spielberg, right? We, you know, Jaws, amazing film, right? Right, and so the blockbuster becomes the way to keep Hollywood going, and so what you have then is a, a desperation on the part of those that are doing uh, new Hollywood type film. You have the emergence of independent film, independent film festivals, independent film theaters, right, and that develops and maintains that. But that creates that dynamic, Hollywood film, independent film. And then you have the Sundance syndrome um, when Hollywood discovers the value of indie film they, and they create their Tiffany divisions. Mm. Searchlight is a mm-hmm. Tiffany division. Mm-hmm. And they go to Sundance and they decide what Hollywood will put out on their screens. And that revised, revitalizes independent film. But that begins to disappear in the second decade or even earlier of this century, right? Where they, where that's where, well, that's why Martin Scorsese hates Marvel films. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't Tarantino recently just uh, slap down uh, superhero movies too? But he did it in a different way. Yeah. And I, I, I sympathize with Quentin Tarantino because what he said is, um, in talking about his Once Upon a Time in L.A., is that um, Brad Pitt is a star. Yes. Right? And he says what's happening is we're losing star power because with the domination of comic book Hollywood film, it's not about, oh, God, Martin, Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. It's about Iron Man, right? I think he's a bad example. He's a bad example. I don't think he used him. I think yeah, he used yeah. Captain America, that's, which is Chris Evans. Yes, Chris Evans. Right. So, so Quentin Tarantino said, you know, you have Brad Pitt as a star, Once Upon a Time in L.A., but you have Chris Evans as Captain America. He's Captain America. That's fair. 
right? And so you really are losing the the art form of being a Hollywood star. And I like Marvel films. So he's not saying he doesn't like Marvel films or they shouldn't exist. But he's saying I'd like to have more films with people, you know, with actors as the star and trying to excel at their form at its best. That's fascinating. You would think you would want the actor to be secondary to the character, right? Like it should be the character, right? Well, that's the in- that's the interesting dynamic Hollywood film because from the nineteen from the very beginning, well, not the very beginning, Bi- Biograph Girl is probably the first out time that it's the star that's the brand. Right. You think about Boris Karloff and right? Frankenstein. Right. That's the difference between uh, the actor's studio form of acting and the form of acting in Hollywood film before. You went to see Humphrey Bogart. Right. His character is still, you know, Casablanca. I mean, it's still an amazing character. But he's typecast. So all the different Hollywood stars are typecast. I mean, Humphrey Bogart at first was typecast as a gangster, as a villain. And he just gradually shifted the anti-hero that he became later, right? But John Wayne, right, we, we can all attach a kind of character, more universal character to these individuals, unlike character actors from the acting studio like Marlon Brando, right, or Paul Newman, and so forth and so on, where it's, they're, they're encapsulating this character in a very different way than classic Hollywood did. And it's very different than other forms of act. There's many, many forms and styles of acting. Very cool. I think we're going to go right to question 13 now to close it off. <laughs> yeah, um, I talk too much. No, this is I great. talk too much. <laughs> you, I, it's, it's funny, Paul, because you talk like I do because I'm very much the same way. I go down like, oh, what's his name? Uh, you know, so like the two of us in a room is bad. Um, <laughs> um, you know, since this is our uh, uh, last uh, episode here before the holiday season, I wonder if you could give your expert advice for folks maybe looking for holiday gifts for people. Um, that <laughs> I, I, no, and I want to ask, no, seriously, um, comic book, either graphic novels for for folks, either adults or young people, um, that you would recommend that maybe you're not in the um, you know the limelight. So some some unique gifts for folks who like. Uh, you know the comic book art form, so they already like it. Sure, or 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 an introduction. <laughs> I'll go either way. So the last graphic novel I read was by John Lewis, the African American congressman yeah, and civil yeah. rights activist. It's called March. I think it's three volumes. Amazing, very powerful, and that's a contemporary graphic novel because I don't read that many contemporary. Classics would be Fun Home, which is also a musical on Broadway, repurposed as a musical on Broadway. Um, Mouse, about the Holocaust. Batman. Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Returns. Watchmen. Then a a great graphic novel is Persepolis as well. And it's a movie, repurposed as a movie. Yes, yes. So. All right, how about jazz CDs people should own? Oh. Or download. I guess uh, not many people own CDs, but. <laughs> <laughs> kind of Blue is a national treasure, right? So, and, and it is an accessible album. I think that's why it sold the most of any jazz album is it's, it's accessible jazz. 
and it lasts forever, right? It's never going to be dated. Basically. And it's a very important historical part of jazz. Hmm. So, yeah, I would recommend that mostly because a lot of people are intimidated by jazz or they just don't get it. And that's fine with me, right? But often they have a very visceral anger because, and I understand there's a snobbery in jazz. Sure. Right. But Kind of Blue is very accessible. It's very beautiful and it's very brilliant. And it also has. John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, and other amazing jazz musicians in the history of jazz. So I would definitely recommend that. Nice entry point. Nice entry point. I think that's a nice closing point. So, uh, Professor Lopes, thank you so much for joining us today. Really thank you, Dan, for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we'll have to have you back on another time. So sure, you. sure. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, send them along to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, uh, in the spring, we will see you um, at the start of the spring semester. Um, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.